one one three. Psalm 113, and we're going to read the whole psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of their people. He settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's praise Him together as we stand to sing two hymns from the rising of the sun and O love that will not let me go. Amen. I'd like to um, ask you to use your imagination for a moment. I know that's a dangerous thing to do at the end of a, a long day. We're all, we're all tiring. I don't want anyone to fall asleep, even though I do have that button, as I said earlier now. But I'd like you to imagine that you're in a social setting, uh, maybe a wedding, for example. And uh, you, you come to the table at the meal, and you have a wee sneaky peek at all the name uh, tags around the table, and to your horror, you find that the person seated next to you at the table is someone that you have never heard of, have never met, and do not know. That's maybe not a horrible situation to you. You're maybe more sociable than I am, in which case this illustration won't work, but uh, bear with me. You imagine that you, you've, you've never met this person before, so you take your place at the table, you introduce yourself, and then you think, okay, I'm going to have to be careful as to how I eat my chicken Balmoral now. I'll have to be very civilized. I'll have to make polite conversations. So you ask this person, say, Alex, you ask Alex what he does for a living. And he says that he is a cleaner. How do you feel in that moment? You're probably not that excited. You're probably not thinking this conversation is going to go much further. You're probably thinking you're going to have to ask Alex about, you know, whether they're going anywhere nice in their holidays this summer uh, quite soon. But then you ask Alex, well, who is it that you work for? And he says, well, I work for Prince William and Princess Catherine or Kate and their two wee wains. Now how are you feeling? Now you're feeling excited. Now you're thinking, this is fantastic. I, I hope this meal takes forever in coming. I've got so many questions I want to ask. 
Do you get to see them on a regular basis? Have you met the Queen? What's the house like? Does the wee boy always dress in chinos and a nice smart shirt even around the house? Or does he have joggies just for kicking about? And you've got all these questions. All of a sudden, it's interesting. All of a sudden, you're excited to have this conversation. Being a servant of any description doesn't seem very desirable at first. It doesn't seem very exciting at first. But really what matters most is who it is that you are serving. And we ought to be excited to take the title Servants of the Lord. Servants of the Lord. It was no small thing for Jesus to take that title unto himself, to be made in the image of man, to become a servant for us. And we ought to be more than happy, more than excited to take that title unto ourselves. The Apostle Paul defended his apostolic credentials when he had to. As Bill said only this morning, he was... Uh, much maligned, and there were times that he had to remind those he wrote to that he was an apostle of Christ Jesus, and he wasn't shy at doing that when he had to, but the title that he took more often than any other one, including apostle, was servant. He often refers to himself in all of his letters as a servant, a servant of Christ Jesus, a servant of the gospel a servant of the church, a servant of God. Paul takes all of these titles gladly. This man who used to be so high up the social ladder, this man who had studied under a revered Pharisee, this man who had ticked all the boxes of the law, happy to be known as a servant, servant of the gospel, a servant of Christ, a servant of the church, and a servant of of God. I wonder if you see yourself first and foremost as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel and His people and, of course, His God. It's a great honor and it is a gift of grace to take. We ought to take joy in serving God and in serving His Son and in serving His people and in proclaiming His gospel. And that's who the psalmist addresses in Psalm 113. O servants of the Lord, he says, this is for us, this is for you. If you are a servant of the Lord, if you are a child of God, the God-breathed book addresses us and exhorts us and appeals us as servants of the Lord to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord Praise, O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord symbolizes all that the Lord is, all of His characters, all, uh, characteristics, all of His attributes, uh, all of His perfections, the old Puritans used to say. The name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord has given lots of different and diverse gifts to His people. Uh, we have lots of different and diverse jobs to fulfill in Christ's name and to build up Christ's church. But first and foremost, we are all servants of the Lord, and we are all to be employed in this great task of bringing praise to the name 
of the Lord, to honor His name, to acknowledge His greatness, and to thank Him for His grace and for His goodness. The call to praise comes to us, His servants, but it doesn't stop there. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Verse 2, let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. Well, it's true that we as servants of the Lord and as sons and daughters of the Lord, as children of God, we are going to praise the Lord forever. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less years to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. That is true, and it is wonderful, and it is glorious. But I think it's at least as likely that the psalmist here has one eye actually not so much on heaven as on future generations. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. The voice of the psalmist echoes down through the corridors of time, through the generations, from generation to generation. Praise Him. And surely that must be our prayer for our children and the children of this church, that they would grow to know the joy that comes from being servants of the Lord who live to praise Him, who live to praise Him, who live to give their praise to the true and living God. I hope that is our prayer, and I hope that we are working, that we might see the Lord answer that prayer. I hope that we are encouraging uh, our kids at ABC leaders, our Bible class leaders. I hope that we are praying for them as well as for the children, for the leaders of the auxiliary groups, for uh, YF, for Bible class, uh, for JAM, uh, for all of these groups. I hope that we are praying and encouraging and helping in any way that we are able, that we might see as many as possible of these young people that the Lord has entrusted to our care, coming through, coming to faith, in Christ Jesus and giving their lives to praise the true and living God. And as we look back upon our own lives, how thankful we ought to be for those who sowed the seed of the gospel into our lives. Maybe some of us were brought up in church and we can look back on our Sunday school teachers and our uh, pastors or ministers of the past or other people who came alongside us. Maybe we come from Christian families. We can give thanks to God for our parents, for our grandparents, elder siblings even. I wonder who it was who first came alongside you, who was concerned that you would come to faith in Christ and come to know the joy that comes to those who serve Him and who praise Him. We ought to give thanks to God for those people, whoever they are and whenever it was, 
but we also ought to remember, as we remember them, that now the baton has been placed into our hands. I wonder if you've been watching the, the athletics. I confess I've not really, but I think the British baton, is it relay teams, is that what they call them? I think they won, uh, much to the surprise of everyone. And it's not just about running fast, it's about having a good changeover, making uh, that transition as smooth and as effective and as efficient as possible. And I think we often think when we pick up this imagery of uh, athletics, of running a race for the Lord, we think about coming to the line, we think about the Lord Jesus waiting for us at the line, and that's fine, that's good, that's healthy to think like that. But sometimes we also ought to think about the relay race of the Christian life, about passing the baton on to the next generation. It's so important that we do that well, that the next generation are able to take hold of the baton and run their race for the Lord. So the call to praise comes, verse 1, to the servants of the Lord, verse 2, to future generations. Then we come to verse 3, from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. This isn't just a line to give us a nice hymn to sing in our evening services. This ought to be a call to mission. Again, it's absolutely true and absolutely biblical to say that the Lord's name is to be praised from first thing in the morning to last thing at night. But I think what the psalmist has in his mind as he writes these words is not so much time as place. He says, have a look, you know, to the horizon in the east where the sun rises. From that place, as far as you can see, away over there to the east, to that place where the sun sets, away over there to the west, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Matthew Henry says, within this wide space, the Lord's name is to be praised. It ought to be so, though it is not. And that should grieve us that there are lands in which the name of the Lord is not praised in the east and in the west. It should grieve us as we look to our land that so few know what it is to serve and to praise the Lord. So John Piper says, missions exist because worship doesn't. It should grieve us greatly that our God is not praised as he ought to be. It should grieve us for the people who don't know what it is to know the Lord, to love the Lord, to serve the Lord, to praise the Lord. They don't know the joy of the Lord Jesus. They don't know the hope of the Lord Jesus. They don't know the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It should grieve us for them, but it should also grieve us for God because he is being robbed of the praise that ought to be his. And so we should be sent out to take the gospel to Airdrie, which of course is the center of the universe, and then to the east, 
out past plains, away east and to the west, past Glasgow, you know, over the ocean, as far as you can go to the west. The name of the Lord is to be praised. And we ought to be playing our part in seeing that come to be. We take the mission statement of the Lord Jesus seriously. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And so we pray for Kieran and for Ashley and for the Baptist Missionary Society uh, working all over the world. And we also make sure that we are working hard for the cause of Christ and for the gospel of Christ here in our community, the community that the Lord calls us to witness to. The call to praise us as servants of the Lord. Praise Him, but also use your gifts to tell the coming generations and use all that you have been given to send the gospel out here and to the east and to the west. That's verses 1 to 3. The call to praise. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. But that's not where the psalm ends. Verses 1 to 3, the call to praise. Verses 4 to 6, the cause for praise. Why is God's name to be praised? Well, firstly, for His greatness and for His glory. Verse 4, the Lord is exalted over all the nations, His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? I watched uh, Real Madrid play Man United on Tuesday night in the European Super Cup final. And uh, Real Madrid won 2-1, but it should have been at least 4-1. They, they, they were vastly superior in every department. And uh, every time I watch Real Madrid, especially when they play well, I think of a, a, a guy that I used to know when I was at Bible College from Madrid, and he supported Real Madrid, and he would, his face would light up as he spoke about Real Madrid, and he would say to me, Ross, think about all of the football teams in the world. How many football teams are there in the world? Must be millions. Think about all of those teams, Ross, and know this. The team that I support are the best. They are the greatest. Real Madrid. I spared you my attempt at a Spanish accent. Uh, but I often think of him saying that because his face was just, just filled with this pride at his hometown team who had accomplished so much through the years. They are the greatest. Well, God is our God is the greatest, never defeated, no rivals. Who is like the Lord our God, asks the psalmist. Answer, no one. No one is like the Lord our God. Who sees all things? No one 
but him. Who understands all things? No one but him. Who is in control of all things? No one but him. Who has always been, is, and will always be? No one but him. And this God is in Christ Jesus, our God. We can say amen to that which the psalmist says in verse 5. Who is like the Lord, our God? Isn't that wonderful? If this God is with us, and if this God is for us, then who can be against us? Actually, my Real Madrid illustration is rubbish. Because Real Madrid, if they win all of their games and go undefeated, they will come top of their league, La Liga in Spain. They will win the league. They will sit at the top of the table. And if they win all of their games, they'll come top in the Champions League as well. But God does not sit at the top of a league or of a list. God is in a league of his own. He is holy. Holy means set apart, separate, distinct, and different. The the phrase that theologians use is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, I think. Holy other. That's what holy means. Holy other. That's what God is. He's not at the top of a list. He's not at the top of a league. He is in a league all of his own. Who is like our God? No one. He alone is truly, perfectly holy. And that is a cry of heaven, isn't it? When we are allowed to to place the, the glass to the wall of heaven, that is what we hear. John has a vision in Revelation chapter 4 of heaven being opened before him. He sees these angelic beings. Day and night, he says, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Hundreds of years before John, the prophet Isaiah had a very similar vision In the year that King Uzziah died, he says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of His glory. Oh, for a glimpse of His glory. We impoverish ourselves so greatly when we make God smaller than He is or softer than He is. We create a God in our own minds less than the God of Scripture. The true and living God is the God of glory. Praise Him. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens? 
and the earth. Our God stoops down just to see the heavens and the earth. To peer into our world, but he doesn't just stoop down and have a look as a kind of distant observer. He is intimately involved in the world that he has made, and he is intimately involved in the lives of the people that he has made. Verses 7 to 9, this is how this great and glorious God, this holy God, this almighty God works in the world. Verse 7, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of their people. He settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. He is strong, and yet He is gentle. He is holy, distinct, and different, and yet He is present. He is involved. He is the God of glory, and yet He is also the God of grace. He's concerned about the poor, the needy, the broken. He lifts, he heals, he binds up the brokenhearted, he blesses. The God of glory is the God of grace. I found myself on a visit this week past reading from Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah says, this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Praise him for his glory and praise him for his grace. And we see both, don't we, as we look to the Lord Jesus. In Christ, God not only stooped down to look at the world, he stepped down to live in the world. God made man, stepped into the world. God enfleshed, lived in this world for us. He lived a truly holy life. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin and is without sin. He reached out in love even to the tax collectors and sinners. He touched those who were deemed untouchable. He loved those deemed to be unlovable. And he died on the cross for those who had rebelled against God. He died on the cross for our sin and our guilt and our shame in love. And now He has risen. He is glorified. He has taken His place at the Father's right hand. John got a glimpse of the glory of Christ Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And John was the one who was perhaps the closest, if you had to say one was closest, the one of the twelve who was most close to the Lord Jesus Christ 
And yet when John gets a vision on the Isle of Patmos of the risen and ascended and glorified Lord Jesus, he falls at his feet as though dead. That is how glorious the Lord Jesus Christ is. He says, among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Amen. May we be a people who really praise Him for His glory and who really praise Him for His grace, a people who acknowledge His glory and His grace with our lips and with our lives. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Uh, amen. And that's what we are going to do as we close our service together. We're going to sing before the throne of God above, which has a verse that says, Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great, unchangeable I Am, the King of glory and of grace. Let's stand together as we sing.